Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So our scripture passage this morning, it comes from Luke chapter 11. We've been uh, looking week after week at different phrases in the Lord's Prayer there, there in Luke 11. We'll continue in that series this morning. We're also going to look at a few of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and then Paul's writing to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. So we're going to be jumping around a bit. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. Uh, so let's read uh, along together as we read God's word. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then Jesus in Matthew 6 says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then from Colossians 3, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. If you would say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Okay, here's the question this morning. When, when was the last time you said, I was wrong, please forgive me? And if you can't remember... Or if it's been a while, that's a bad sign. It should be a regular thing. It should be a, probably a daily thing in your life. Uh, and, but it's something I want us to give to consideration to this morning. We're going to talk about forgiveness, but we're going to come at it from our dynamic with one another and then bring it back to the way that the Lord has forgiven us. But here's the thing. Forgiveness is hard, and it's increasingly unfashionable, even in some circles, immoral. Even immoral. We're being shaped powerfully by cultural forces that see calls to forgiveness as weapons in the hands of oppressors to further oppress. Tim Keller has written an amazing article dealing with these issues, contending with the cultural assumptions that are causing what he calls, and it's the title of the article, The Fading of Forgiveness. It's quite profound. I'd recommend it to you. But that article will soon become a book that's set to come out later this year. Now, you may not know, but Dr. Keller is battling stage four pancreatic cancer. And yet, and so this may be his last book. And so uh, he's spending time and energy to write in between chemotherapy, thinking about his legacy, wanting this to be one of the last words he gives to the church because in his mind, the topic is so important. He, he talks about the way that as we continue to embrace the therapeutic culture or a therapeutic approach to personhood, which causes us to turn inward. It, it's converting us into self-actualizers whose primary concern is to get respect and affirmation for our own truth, our identity, our personal brand, and then creates a shame on our culture that is really, really profound, a shame on our culture of victimhood where victims have the high moral ground they are granted the highest honor, and then just below them are those who defend victims. So you get a cancel culture, and here are his words, a society of constant 
good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as victims or as defenders of victims. But here's what Keller contends. He says, it atrophies our ability to lovingly overlook slights, but most of all, it sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is now seen as radically unjust and impractical. Perhaps that is the cause of much of the polarization that we are hyper aware of. Families being torn in two over political differences. So as our society has rejected Christianity, we have not become more tolerant. Have you noticed? We have not become less moralistic. We have become more, far more harsh and judgmental because we retain, in, in the image of God in us, we retain a sense of justice, but as Christianity has faded, now there's no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. So Alan Jacobs has said, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many Christians believe, sexual licentiousness. The great moral crisis of our time is vindictiveness. And we're in big trouble. Keller goes on, he says, the most obvious contribution that the church could, become, could make is to recover its own theology and practice of forgiveness and to become a true counterculture that can serve as a witness to the world. It is our missional responsibility as followers of Jesus for the, uh, to display for the world the unique resources and power in the Christian gospel and in Christian community. There's much at stake in the way that we as a church and as a people love and forgive one another. And that's why it should be a constant prayer. Jesus teaches us here, verse 4. Look there. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, personal note before we get into this. I just want to say and go on record, I am the biggest sinner in the room. I know that better than anybody. Because of my position with all the words over the years and even this morning, I'm conscious of that. The leadership role in, in this particular church, I've done the most sinning in this church, and it will always be that way. I will always do the most sinning of anybody in this church. So for those of you that I've hurt, but you're still in the room, or there's some of you who are back after some time away to heal, that is, I want to say, a grace that I do not take for granted. But I want to also say this, I, maybe you're like me, I am starving for forgiveness. Anybody else? Don't make me feel like I'm all alone, guys. I'm starving. I'm starving for it. I keep hoping. Anybody, I keep hoping that I will figure out how to do it right the very first time. So far, it's not working. And I have a confession, to be honest. I was thinking about this this week. I, um, I need to confess to you that I have, 14 years in now, I have pulled back some over the years uh, in this role because it's so hard to live with being the cause of other people's hurts, even though in so many cases it's unintentional or even unavoidable. You know that old saying, to avoid, to avoid sinning against people, to avoid criticism, to avoid conflict, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing? It's a real temptation. And I'm trying to find my way back from that, but here's what would embolden me to become the person that I think God needs for me to be. I'm starving for forgiveness. And I'm asking you, let's meet one another at the places where we wound and hurt one another with that. Can we do that? That's what this text is trying to help us do. And so the petition here, this petition, forgive us as we forgive, forgive us because we've forgiven, it really is training us in a number of ways 
three things, and this the three points of the outline that I've given to you. Really, we're being trained in how to forgive sparingly, how to forgive mutually, and ultimately how to forgive supernaturally. So in the church, we forgive sparingly, we forgive mutually, we forgive supernaturally. And so let's look at the, the, all of these different texts together, thinking about this issue of forgiveness, if we could, for just a little bit. And first, we'll see that the prayer here that Jesus gives to us is meant to train us to forgive sparingly. Forgiveness is both an attitude and an action, and we need to learn to separate the two as a matter of wisdom. We must be careful not to absolutize forgiveness, because there are a lot of superficial wounds that nobody needs to be forgiven for. There are unintentional hurts and indignities that we should simply bear with with a measure of grace. Lewis Smeads, who's written a number of great books, he was at Fuller Seminary for years, he counsels that we sort out our hurts and learn the difference between those that call for the miracle of forgiveness and those that can be born with understanding or even a sense of humor. If we lump all of our hurts together and prescribe forgiveness for all of them, we give into that victimhood narrative that I described earlier that is spiritually unhealthy, and we turn forgiveness into something cheap and commonplace. So here's Smeeds. He writes, Not everybody is out to get us. Our lives are, 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 are filled with people who wound our feelings in small ways, but who mean no real harm. We suffer some inevitable aches simply because we are vulnerable people living in a crazy world where fragile spirits sometimes accidentally collide. That is an amazing sentence. Let me say it again. He says, we suffer some inevitable aches simply because we're vulnerable people living in a crazy world where fragile spirits sometimes accidentally collide. The Colossians 3 text makes a distinction that we should be careful to note. A distinction between the need to bear with one another and the times where forgiveness is necessary. And the first is a general rule. There's a general rule for our interactions with one another. We cover one another with understanding and grace. We give one another the benefit of the doubt. We expect to be disappointed so that when another person proves weak or selfish or has just a moment of carelessness or whatever it might be, when their own hurt gets the best of them, and they hurt you, your instinct, according to Colossians, should be compassion first. The ability to be curious about that other person and not just focused on what they did that hurt you the way that it did. To have, to, to have a soft heart towards them. Or maybe to learn where they cry. That's Brendan Manning's advice. It's always stuck with me. But Paul says, you go ahead and ahead of time, you decide that you're going to posture yourself in kindness and humility and patience and you bear with them, you endure it, you show grace. That's how we should be relating to one another all the time, the majority of the time. That's the rule, the attitude. But then there are the exceptions to that rule. And he goes on in verse 13, if you look in that text, where he talks about there's a genuine now, a complaint that someone has against another. And forgiveness should be reserved for those moments. And you got to know the difference. There's a difference. There's a difference between being annoyed at someone and needing to forgive them. There's a difference between being disappointed in a relationship because it hasn't gone the way you wanted it to or even the way that it should have and needing to forgive, right? There's a difference. Being annoyed hurts, being disappointed hurts, but it doesn't require forgiveness, not necessarily. Betrayal does, brutality does, and so if you have a relationship 
that is chronically dysfunctional. There's constant conflict. One thing you have to do is you have to ask yourself first if maybe you're just too touchy or too needy. Or maybe it's just that you're two sinful people and you've been in a relationship with a long time with one another and there are those accidental collisions between vulnerable people in a crazy world and maybe the hurt's just accumulated, but it's not necessarily because the other person has done something that rises to the level of a complaint or it may not even be that it's the other person's fault. The way forward may be to distinguish as best you can between whatever disappointment or the accumulation of those things and the true offense, or to use, again, this language, the moments where you have a true complaint, where there's a chargeable, concrete, something concrete where, where it's, you know, when you did this, we don't forgive people for who they are, we forgive people for what they've done. There's a specific wrong, and this is Smeeds' designation. He says that is personal and unfair and deep. There's a wrong that is so personal and unfair and deep that it cannot easily be brushed aside. It's so injurious that it cannot be ignored if you're to continue together relationally. There's a moral hindrance to fellowship. And that's where, that's where the act of forgiveness comes in. So the first thing is that forgiveness means letting most things go. But also possessing the wisdom to know which things must be addressed. We have to be a people who are forgiving. We have to be a people who are wise if we're going to obey Jesus in this command. Now, where there is such a complaint, what then? Well, then comes the action of forgiveness. The attitude, the action of forgiveness and there's a perpetual debate, you may be aware, I think we were talking about this as a family, uh, whenever, it's, it's always dangerous to say the Lord's Prayer in a public place because you never know whether it's supposed to be forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. Have you all ever been in those awkward moments? Like, which one is it? You know, is it forgive us debts, forgive us our, and Scottish Presbyterians and then the Congregationalists that came to America, both of which, both of which eventually migrated to America, uh, were firmly in the debt camp. And of course, we're a Presbyterian church, so we're in the debt camp. Uh, but I think it's significant, at least because the word in the Greek here in this text means debt or debtor. That's why the ESV translates it, as you see there in verse 4, as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. But there's an important spiritual lesson to learn there, and it's just this, that sin creates a debt. When someone wrongs you, it creates an emotional debt of pain. You feel it, and they owe payment for what they've taken from you. And for the relationship to go on, the debt has to be paid down. That's what, that's what the teaching is here. When I was a, a youth pastor many, many years ago, one of the kids in my group at the time needed some financial help. He would, had gone on to college and he was taking a, a class load that he needed some supplies and did not have any way to purchase the things that he needed. And so we lent him some money uh, and back then, we barely had enough money for us. It was a sacrificial thing, and we did it. And uh, he promised to pay us back, you know, we, we, you know but uh, he never did. And then went on to make some really bad decisions and took advantage of that generosity on our parts. And he, we were truly, really, really close. But in the process of that, all that ruined our relationship. Now, we've spoken since. It's all good. There's forgiveness, but it's still not the same. Now, that's, just, that's a financial matter, but in the same way, every sin creates a debt. And for the relationship to move forward, the debt has to be paid down. And there are two ways 
that that happens. There's only one of two ways can that happen. The first is that if somebody hurts you, if, if, they, if somebody sins against you, wounds you deeply, and there's a debt that's created, you can make them pay. You can withhold your love and affection. You can withdraw from them. You can build up a good resentment inside against them. And then every chance you get, you can let it out. You can be cold to them. You can be harsh with them. You can talk bad about them to other people. You can punish them. You hurt them. Because, of course, that pays down the debt. They hurt you. And every time you're able to hurt them back, it feels better. And it works slowly, right? You feel less and less the pain of the, the, the pain debt. But there's a big problem. And the big problem is that when you make the other person pay, when you're actively trying to hurt them, you're doing revenge, which is the opposite of forgiveness. You're trying to make yourself feel better by doing the same thing to them that they have done to you. You're repaying the evil with your own evil, which means you're becoming in the process the very evil that was done to you, and it will make you hard and cynical. It will distort the way you look at things. It will distort the way you look at the other person, but there's another way. There's one other way to pay down that pain debt, and that is to pay it down yourself, to absorb it yourself. And I really learned this from Tim Keller, who I've already mentioned, but here's what he says. He says, every time... These are his words, and they're so good, I can't, I can't improve upon them. So you're just going to have to bear with this lengthy Tim Keller quote, okay? At least it's not C.S. Lewis, so we can, you know. He says, every time that you want to rehash the past with yourself or with another person, and you don't, it hurts. Every time you want to rub their nose in it, it hurts. Every time you want to be cold to them, but instead you try to be warm to them, it hurts. Every time you have a chance to run them down to somebody else and you don't, it hurts. Every time you see them prospering and you refuse <laughs> to stick little pins in them in your head and you don't, it hurts. But he says, what are you doing? Why does it hurt so much? He says, it's costly not to take revenge. You're making the payments. So he goes on to say that the only, really, the only way to really pay the debt is to do this. If you choose revenge, what's happening is it's just going to get worse. If, but if you refuse to put any fuel in your anger, then eventually, eventually over time, it'll burn out. Eventually, depending upon the size of the wrong, the debt will be paid and you'll be free. And it won't have warped your soul in the process. And you will have overcome evil, not by repaying it with evil, but overcoming evil with good. So here's the thing. What forgiveness is not? It is not forgetting you can't forgive people for the things you've forgotten. You forgive because you have not forgotten. It's not excusing. It's not avoiding either the person or the problem. It's not tolerating what forgiveness is. It is the removal of the moral hindrance to fellowship by doing these things, by acknowledging the hurt, acknowledging the reality of the debt, by working to keep a soft heart, resisting the temptation to moral superiority, either self-righteousness or self-pity, whichever way it goes, sacrificially and supernaturally paying down the debt yourself and not making that other, other person pay, and then, as best as you can, you move on. You let it go. You free the other person from the obligation, and you free yourself from the poison of hatred and bitterness. Isn't that a much better way to live? So, we learn, first, from this prayer, it trains us, or it's meant to train us to forgive sparingly. But secondly, the prayer is also meant to train us to forgive mutually. Because here's the other thing we learn, is that forgiveness is always a two-way street. 
It's never a one-way street. In a relationship with somebody else, forgiveness is never just one way. It's always a two-way street. We need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiving. We need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiving. Both of those realities are always present all the time in every interaction. And I'm thinking still here primarily about person-to-person dynamics. They are so closely connected, in fact, that it's sometimes hard to feel the difference between them. So here's the thing I want to say. According to the Bible, right is never solely on one side and wrong on the other. There's never a purely innocent party and a completely guilty party. We're all guilty. We all need to be forgiven. I never address someone, I never address the sin in someone else without being a sinner myself. I should never address your sin without first being mindful of my own. Scripture scripture warns about this. It's why there should always be a tone of gentleness, compassion, and even heartbreak. That's Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2. Any harshness or self-righteousness, what's happening is you're forgetting the mutuality of it. I cannot, I cannot forgive you. You cannot forgive me. I cannot forgive you without, without also asking for your forgiveness. You cannot forgive me without asking for mine. I must be forgiven and I must forgive. Those two things are always there, always at the same time. So mutuality, mutuality is so important that it even begins to sound like conditionality. Now notice, this is interesting. It took me a, it took me a little while, but notice, look at, look at verse uh, 3 in the prayer really closely and notice there is no prayer for help forgiving others okay notice that i've never seen i've never this is this was the new thing for me this week as i was looking at this it does not say forgive us our sins and like a forgive us our sins and b help us forgive those who've sinned against us what does it say it says forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us now, that last part is not a prayer. It's a position statement. It's, it's a rationale. Jesus is saying, you pray this way, forgive us our sins, Lord, because we forgive everybody else. But here's the thing. Be careful because it's mutuality. It's not a statement of conditionality. It's a statement of mutuality. And this is we got to do some work here because this is really, really important. It's the recognition that What we ask of God, we must also be ready to do ourselves. We must decide ahead of time, before the hurt happens, that that, that we will always respond with with forgiveness. I mean, when Jesus asked his disciple, or excuse me, when the disciple asked Jesus, he said, you know, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven? He thought he had the right answer, remember that? He thought he was proud of himself. Seven. I'm willing to forgive seven times. And Jesus' answer was, no, not seven, but 70 times. Seven? It's not a description of the extent of our forgiveness. It is a description of what should be the readiness in us to forgive. It's hurricane season. Are you prepared? Okay, now I'm worried about you. If you're a true true Floridian, you know you better be prepared. You better get ready ahead of time. If you wait until the storm hits, guess what? Excuse my French. You're screwed. Right? Right? That's bad. The stores are going to be closed. You're not going to have anything you need. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying you better get ready ahead of time because this is just the way life's going to go. You got to have you got to have this loaded up and ready to go. So he says in Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, 
neither will your father forgive you. What, what does that mean? Now, I included that text in the reading because it's so challenging, and I want us to wrestle with it and refuse to simply explain it away. But here's what Jesus is saying. We cannot claim forgiveness for ourselves while still actively refusing to offer it to others. It simply does not work that way. It simply does not work that way. Not because our forgiveness is, condition, is a condition for being forgiven. You don't become deserving by being forgiven. I'm excuse me, you don't become deserving of being forgiven by forgiving. That can't be, that's works. Forgiveness that is a condition is no forgiveness at all. And so what is it then? And so many have offered explanations here, but I like the way Frederick Buechner puts it best. He says, he says it like this. He says, to be forgiven and to forgive both require the same thing. You have to swallow your pride. Jesus' prayer then, and here are his words. He says, Jesus' prayer acknowledges that the pride which keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And would God please help do something about it? Your ability to forgive others is not a condition of being forgiven. It is, however, the supreme test of whether you are truly attuned to the grace of forgiveness. You cannot, let me be a good friend to you this morning, you cannot claim grace for yourself and at the same time deny it to others. It doesn't work that way. Grace doesn't work that way. Grace is love and acceptance for the undeserving. And if you are so undeserving that you need grace, which is exactly true of every single one of us in this room, if you are so undeserving that you need grace, then you cannot declare anyone else so undeserving that they should not also be shown grace. If you do, you're just showing that somewhere in your heart you still don't get it. You forfeit it for yourself. The idea that you deserve to be forgiving but others do not is incongruous in itself. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. And it's a warning. It's a warning to remember that we are saved by grace through faith, which is not our own doing but the gift of God and not a result of works. And so if you are not able or not willing to forgive, it is an indication that works have snuck in the back door of your heart. They've made their way back into your heart somewhere. And you're, if you compare yourself to others and conclude, you know, I am a small enough sinner to be forgiven, but they are too big a sinner to ever be forgiven. The debt I owe to God is small, but the debt they owe to me is unforgivable. That's works. That's not grace. And that's why it's so dangerous. And N.T. Wright said it well. I think he said, he said, as soon as somebody refuses to forgive, they're saying, what the, what you, if you for, refuse to forgive, then you just go back up the Lord's Prayer. You're, you're nullifying everything that's come before in the Lord's Prayer. He says, so as soon as somebody forgive, refuses to forgive, they're saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't really believe you're a father in heaven. I don't think that the forgiveness of sins has occurred. In other words, if we refuse to forgive, we are undoing everything else that we're being taught here. We are not knowing God as Heavenly Father. We are not hallowing his name. We are denying his kingdom its earthly foothold. Because grace, grace and graciousness always go together. Being forgiven and forgiving are two sides of the same coin. And so we pray for the strength and grace to live loved, to feel forgiven ourselves. And we pray for the strength and grace to love and to forgive others and never one without the other. We breathe in. This is the way the Christian life works. 
we breathe in the cool, clean, oh, mountain air of God's grace, which our spiritual lungs so desperately need, and then we breathe it out onto the lives of others. And so we learn the way Jesus intends to be shaping us to forgive sparingly and always mutually, but ultimately supernaturally, because forgiveness is empowered by faith. It doesn't come from you, okay? It has to come through you. The power comes from outside of you. There are two great commands, love God, and what's the second? I'm going to involve you now. What's the second command? Love neighbor, love others. Okay, two great commands, love for God, love for others. Faith and love, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, and faith energizes love. Love evidences faith. Faith energizes love. Love evidences faith. There's a correspondence between those two. They always go together. Faith and love correspond. Love for God and love for neighbor correspond. So in every love crisis between two people, there is a faith dynamic as well. As two people work to forgive one another, they have to also be dealing with their own hearts before God. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, we don't relate immediately to one another in Christian community. We don't relate immediately that is, without a mediator. All of our relationships, all of our interactions with one another are mediated. There is no direct line of communication between two people in Christian community. Jesus stands between us. It's a really powerful metaphor. And so if I want to get to you, or if you want to get to me, right? if I want to get to you, I first have to go through him before I can get to you. And so with forgiveness, before we can begin to deal with one another... We must first deal with God individually. And this shows up in a couple places in the, in the Colossians passage. Look at verse 13. It says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So in other words, before you try to forgive, you must first remember how you've been forgiven by God. And that becomes the standard of the way that you relate to the other person. And not just the standard, but the spiritual power to go on to forgive supernaturally. Then zoom out. All that the Apostle Paul says there in Colossians 3 about our posture towards one another... It's all derivative of what he says in verse 12. He declares, he, he, he defines and describes our status with God. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, compassionate hearts, and so forth, bearing with one another and forgiving. And so here's what that means. If you belong to God, you are so loved. You are loved so powerfully, so completely, so thoroughly, so consistently, so enduringly. That being loved like that makes you holy. It sets you apart for a special, countercultural, supernatural kind of life. You are filled with all of the love and the emotional wealth that you need in your relationship with God so that you can put away, as Jonathan prayed, anger and wrath and malice and all of those things, and instead put on humility and patience and kindness and even forgive. There's a debt of sin that you owe to God. And it is a cosmic debt because he is supremely worthy of your everything. And in comparison to the worst sins that others commit against you, those things, those things are a pittance in comparison to the debt that we owe to God. They are a few pennies compared to the national debt. And how has God treated you and me in our sin? Well, the Bible says he does not cause us to pay down the debt ourselves, but he in fact pays down the debt himself, the infinite cost, by the shedding of his own blood on the cross. And as they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, if you remember, 
Jesus, you might have seen maybe in the Passion of the Christ that scene, but as they're nailing his hands and feet to the cross, Jesus is crying out, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, not because God was unwilling to forgive. The heart cry of Jesus there is the heart cry of God himself. Remember what we read at the beginning of the service, God's glory is his goodness. He is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and a God who forgives. Religion says, religion says, you pay your way back to God. You do all the things. But Christianity says, no, the debt you owe to God is too great for you to ever pay on your own. God has to do it. That's the only way. And in fact, that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. And if you rely upon him and not your own, not your own righteousness, if you rely upon his work, and not on yourself for your standing with God, then no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it in your life, no matter what mess you've caused, you can be forgiven of your sins. But here's the thing. There's a correspondence between faith and love, between your faith and your love. There is a correspondence between the degree to which you know you're forgiven and your ability to forgive others. So if you're struggling, it is not because of the magnitude of the hurt the other person has caused you, it's because of the, the smallness of your own faith. That's a hard statement. Let me, let me, let me rephrase that. If you're struggling, it is not merely because of the magnitude of the hurt the other person has caused you, there is another dynamic, and that is the littleness of your own faith. You have faith work to do before you go any further with the love work. We are forgiven to forgive. Hence the prayer. Forgive us and, and help us feel forgiven. You know, I take such great comfort in the places where God says, I will remember your sins no more. Isn't that just the best? I'll remember your sins no more. But how exactly does that work? I mean, exactly, you know. Because I said earlier, forgiveness is not forgetting. And so the language in those verses doesn't mean that God just sweeps our sin under the rug. Rather, and I think it was Lewis Smedes again who, who said it this way as I was preparing this week, the language there means that God edits his own memory. He decides that what we once did is irrelevant to how he feels about what we are. That what we once did is irrelevant to the way he relates to us in the present. And when you choose to forgive, that's exactly what you're doing. You're editing your own memory. You're saying, I'm not going to let, well, you're saying, I'm not going to be dishonest about what happened. But the past is irrelevant to my feelings and my intentions towards that person in the present. And listen, that's beautiful, isn't it? You with me? That's beautiful. And that will cause the world to stand up and say, okay, what's going on with those people? There's an old Charles Wesley hymn uh, in the Gatsby hymnal. Uh, it's a little complicated, but I'm going to try it this morning. But here that gets at this and gets at how this would cause us to really practically begin to pray. And here, make this hymn a prayer of your own this morning where he says, Savior, Prince, enthroned above repentance to impart, give me, through thy dying love, the humble, contrite heart. Give what I have long implored, a portion of thy love unknown. Turn and look upon me, Lord, and break my heart of stone. 
Look, as when thy pitying eye was closed, that we might live. Father, at the point to die, my Savior gasped, forgive. Surely with that dying word, he turns and looks and cries, tis done. O my loving, bleeding Lord, this is what breaks my heart of stone. Amen, do you see that? So let's pray exactly that together this morning. Can we do that? So Father, give us eyes to see the Savior's dying love for us. Give us the eyes of faith to hear across the ages him crying out upon the cross in reference to us. Father, forgive them. What amazing love. As, as the hymn writer said, amazing love, how can it be that, that you, my God, would die for me, that you would not demand of me the payment for my sins, but that you would take upon yourself the responsibility to pay that debt down. Jesus, we have no hope apart from that great work that you've done because that debt of sin is a cosmic debt and only one of cosmic proportions could have ever paid it. And being God uh, himself, Jesus Christ, through the preciousness of his blood, has made it possible. And so, Father, make it, make it real in our hearts this morning, the great love that you have shown to us, that we might more and more taste and know the wonder and beauty and goodness of being forgiven of all of the, the awful things that have been true of our lives. And may it do just that. May it break our hearts of stone and cause us to live towards one another in humility and compassion, patience, bearing with one another, and where there are complaints, forgiving, just as you have forgiven us, that we might be a people, salt and light in a world that continues to see the reality of forgiveness fading, but so desperately, and so people so hungry to know the truth of it. So may it put us on mission for the sake of your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you're here and your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you will not find a better king to serve. All the other kings, all the other gods, all the other powers in the world will demand your life to serve them. He's the only one who gave his life to serve you. So put your faith in him. I just want to say that. Receive this benediction now. It is both a promise and a commissioning. Here's the promise. I remember, I think it was Anne Lamont who said this in a way that just really stuck with me over the years. She said, grace is love that goes ahead of you and meets you on the way as you come along the road. That's what these words mean, that whatever, whatever need of grace that you have, God makes a promise to you in these words that he is going before you to meet you on Wednesday afternoon at one o'clock in that moment of need with grace that he is ready to give to you because of Jesus. Isn't that great news? But it's also a commissioning that we be people who prepare our hearts even now to go out in grace and meet people in their moment of need as they come along the road behind us. So receive the benediction and go uh, as his image bearers in the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.